Well, not quite. I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer. The future of finance is now. We got a lot of great feedback from you, our listeners, about our last program on rappers and crypto. And a particularly interesting point made by one astute listener was that there are some artistic commonalities in the two industries. Rappers like to create music, and the software engineers behind crypto enjoy creating infrastructure, apps, money, and of course, alternative payments. And I have to admit, it doesn't take too much time looking at some of the white papers to see that for some of these engineers, Building an alternative to government fiat currencies and payment rails is as much a creative and political exercise as it is a commercial one. The question, of course, is whether or not such creation is valuable or creative destruction. Just remember 2008. A lot of folks thought that they were being creative with newfangled innovations called credit default swaps, which led to, well... You know the story. We are just seconds to go until the start of trading at the New York Stock Exchange, and stocks are set to kick off lower, a whole lot lower. We, we haven't seen anything like this probably since the Great Depression, I think it's fair to say. We've had an eight-day losing streak in the Dow that in percentage terms puts it on par, close to the loss suffered in that crash in 1987, close to that percentage loss those two days in 1929. Which takes us to today's show. Regulators are aware of history, and regulating innovation is tricky. On the one hand, you want to enable innovation and allow people to get better products and services, but at the same time, you don't want to relive the Great Depression. Now, this all makes the choices of financial regulators critically important for aspiring fintech firms and financial stability. One of the things that we hope makes this program unique is that we periodically try to check in with the very top regulators who are setting the rules for emerging companies. What goes on here in DC can inform how much startups can raise, who their competitors may be, and whether or not they can even operationalize the business models that they're contemplating. With all that in mind, we have the honor of welcoming Joseph Odding, the Comptroller of the Currency. Now, the OCC, or the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, is the primary regulator of banks, and uh, particularly those banks uh, who are looking for a national license. And it's also been at the forefront of thinking through a lot of things, including how and whether to give fintechs that aren't banks permission to engage in limited activities that have traditionally been reserved for banks. It's also in the midst of launching new fintech initiatives, and we wanted to stop in and see what they're up to for our audience. Regulators! Mount up! Mr. Comptroller, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much, Chris. Now, fintech is complicated, and so is financial regulation. So I, I think maybe it's best to start off with what is the specific role of the OCC in this alphabet soup of fintech regulators? Sure. Um, well, first of all, the, uh, the role of the OCC is the, to supervise the national banks and to ensure that we have a safe and sound U.S. banking system, um, that consumers have access to that system, and that banks follow the laws and regulations of the land um, as they operate their institutions. 
that goes back to you know in uh, 1863, to which you know Lincoln chartered the OCC to be uh, the comptroller of the currency to ensure you know as our country was coming together that commerce and banking could be done across straight, uh, state lines. As far as fintech, it um, uh, you know it's one of the most exciting things I think occurring in the banking industry and the revolution. If you if you think banks have always been innovators, if you go back to the first time, you probably all of us remember when we stuck our first ATM card in an ATM and you wondered, wow, how that was going to change. Magic. That's right. No longer <laughs> nine to five banking, but you know eight o'clock, nine o'clock, six o'clock on the way to work. Um, then the next, you know, big innovation along those lines was that you could go on and look at your balances on, on the online system. And then came bill pay. And then, you know, shortly after that, it was the ability to conduct transactions on your phone. And so the banking industry has also always been an innovator in the financial service space. But then really over the last five to 10 years, we've had this whole new entrance of disruptors that are entering into the banking sector, looking at ways to do things different and be able to satisfy the needs of consumers. And so the OCC, in, in my mind, can play a valuable role in that, um, both by considering those type of entities to be national banks, but also to give them good guidance as they look to partner with banks to be able to offer products and services into the banking space. Could you tell us a little bit uh, about, you know, some people describe this as a sandbox, but really what you're trying to accomplish and what kinds of considerations go into your mind that maybe distinguish what a banking sandbox looks like versus, say, a sandbox in other financial services? Uh, first of all, I, I uh, would like to give credit to Tom Curry, who was my predecessor of starting the Office of Innovation at the OCC. Um, what he really had the vision to do is to create a centralized area within the agency um, as people were moving technology forward, both banks and non-banks and potential suppliers to the banking, to have that group to be able to interact with. And I often, you know, kid that, you know, at the time Tom did that and brought up the idea of a national banking charter, there were thousands of entities who thought that they wanted to be banks. Um, but as they came in and learned about what it took to be a bank with capital and liquidity and risk management, I often kid a lot of people left the building leaving skid marks. <laughs> and, and, and so, but what the, the outshoot of that has been is a lot of entities decided we don't want to be a bank, but we have things that we can offer the banking industry. And so a big part of the Office of Innovation has been on helping people to understand what it takes to partner with a bank, what kind of technology requirements, what kind of compliance requirements, what kind of you know resources does it take so a bank can choose you as a vendor. And I think that's one of been one of the great successes of the Office of Innovation. But as we've continued down this journey, the other things that we've heard from people, you know, really was we want to try things in the banking industry. And and um, uh, our role, as I indicated to you earlier, is that, that, you know, banks follow the laws and regulations of the land. And so we could not carte blanche offer sandboxes that could cause consumer harm or could violate laws. And so our approach to that instead was, was to begin to create this centralized framework within the OCC where people could come in and say, here's what we would like to try here's what we think the impact could be, and here's how we would implement it. And so we could be along for that journey on those technological advancements and be able to provide feedback both on you know, compliance-type issues, legal-type issues, and regula regulatory issues so that we don't wake up in the bottom of the ninth and find out a bank has implemented something um, that perhaps has caused problems, that we could be along for that journey. Great. And that's really something I, I want to return to very soon. Uh, but I did also want to catch up on on a remark that you had made uh, about um, Comptroller Curry and 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 
really helping to launch these special purpose national bank charters, right? Uh, these uh, special kinds of charters that were uh, intended to allow fintech companies to perhaps provide uh, more bespoke banking-like uh, services. But is the demand still there? And how do you think the market has changed uh, since the, I guess, 2015 or 2016 when this uh, program was first envisioned? Well, first of all, um, there are clearly um, certain activities being done in the marketplace today that I believe should be either in a state bank regulated or a national bank. If you look at the online lending activities, both the small ticket consumer and small ticket business lending, um, there are a number of entities that are operating operating across state lines and doing you know these type of activities on a national basis. I think um, we as a nation would be advantaged if someone was overlooking those activities from from the standpoint of a state banking regulator or a national bank. We also could ensure that you know there was sufficient capital and liquidity and risk management practices. So I, I do think as you kind of think through that, that there are certain entities that have the need to be a national bank, and that's what we want to provide to them. Um, there are some legal challenges to our authority to do that, that we're working our way through, but we're um, highly confident that the, the, the current law that says, you know, if somebody, you know, takes deposits or process checks or makes loans, it's or, it's not and, um, they could qualify to be a national bank. With regards to that FinTech charter, are you, is it possible that one could expect, and, and there have been some challenges, but any, any uptake um, in, in the near or the medium term? Or do you think that there just needs to be, uh, and there will be some clarity that will be established, and then you'll have more folks jumping in um, um, at that time? Yeah. So just um, uh, the path that a fintech could take is, you know, the path on the fintech charter, the special charter, would be they would be a national bank, but not necessarily a deposit-taking financial institution. That's kind of lane one. Lane two is, is that for a fintech to come in and actually apply for a full service charter, which would give them the ability to do lending and take deposits. And so what we've seen is a number of the fintechs have just decided that they're going to go for lane two. Meaning, meaning uh, that that um, you know probably somewhere down the path in their plan was to be able to take deposits to fund their operations, and so a lot of the online lenders today are funded by alternative sources than deposits. And clearly, in that business model, it's an attractive feature to be able to have deposits. And so it gets a little bit more complex because now the FDIC also is required to concur on the charter, which I think is a fully acceptable and 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 you know legitimate path to go down. So we've seen more and more of the entities now saying, hey, I, the FinCheck charter really seemed to work for us in the short term. It gave us the ability to operate on a national basis, but still stay in context of the consumer laws. But if that isn't readily available, we still would like to be a national bank. And so the full service charter is something that a number of them are pursuing. One problem uh, that we saw just a couple of weeks ago with Capital One, and it's a problem I think that is germane to and impacts uh, not just fintechs, but but banks as as they uh, adopt technical and digital infrastructures, is the question of cybersecurity. What do you think we should learn uh, from the Capital One and frankly other experiences, and, and what can regulators 
uh, do? What are they trying to do uh, to prevent similar events from recurring in the future? Particularly, again, as, as fintechs and banks are trying to develop their own business and tech strategies uh, in this increasingly uh, digitalized world. Sure. Uh, um, Chris, obviously, you know I can't comment specifically on, uh, on Capital One. Um, uh, uh, but I can give you some, you know, general viewpoints on this that I think are are pertinent. Um, first of all, uh, as a regulator, um, when we go out and look at an institution, we look hard at their security perimeter. We look at their hardware. We look at their software. We look at their patchwork. And then, you know, just as important in today's environment is the recovery plan, um, because I think the lessons learned that we've learned from a lot of entities that perhaps had self-inflicted uh, issues, like you know, transition onto a new technology platform or. Um, some challenges and disruption is how do I get to my customers and communicate um, is a very important ingredient that I think has been the biggest lessons learned. Um, I think the protocols around the banking industry um, have been good. I think, you know, banks are um, quick to respond when there are issues, and I think they are quick to report to their regulators um, when there are issues. And there, it is a partnership, so to speak, of us sitting down with other regulators and uh, uh, enforcement agencies when there are events uh, that occur for us to all uh, you know understand what they were, how they were created, and then if there were lessons learned, that we make sure that the rest of the banking industry is understanding of those. Um, this is a an enormously complex you know topic, and um, uh, and then you introduce the cloud um, into this equation, and there's a whole nother segment of your um, uh, reliance on technology that is, you know, put off to a third party yeah. who That's who so comes yeah. into the equation um, in all different kinds of degree. But as we did find in its publicly available data, the perpetrator on Capital One um, was part of an entity providing services to Capital One who had unique knowledge and skills of, of that particular system that then gave her the ability to come into and challenge the, the infrastructure and architect of Capital One um, and was able then to you know, be able to penetrate. Uh, I can tell you, um, we meet you know, almost daily for many weeks on, on these issues when they, are, they occur. I, it's a learning experience for me every time a new one you know, comes up. Um, and it is a little bit of whack-a-mole, unfortunately, that, you know, when, you know, we had the denial of service issue that was prevalent a couple years ago where people were going out and, you know, confiscating people's computers and having them dial into a online banking system or some system to overwhelm it that then shut the system down. Oh, wow. Now there's technology that, you know, prohibits that. So, but it is, it is an incredibly important topic for our nation, I think, is, you know, I, I often say, similar to young people today who carry very limited money in their billfold and rely solely on their debit card or their Apple Pay or their credit card to get gas in the morning, to go to Starbucks, to go to lunch, and then maybe grab fast food on the way home that night. You're describing me, by the yeah. way. <laughs> and, 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 you know, have 20 to $100 in their billfold, but don't realize the impact because most of them have never experienced this in their life if one day, two days, five days, they did not have access to that system. That's right. You know, in the in the impact that that could have. And so we spend a lot of time um, uh, as agencies and treasury, you know, thinking through things like that from the standpoint of, you know, what would we do? How would we communicate? How would we come together? What is What are processes and tools available to us? Well, I know that you've just 
you know, scared a large segment of our, <laughs> of our listeners right now and thinking, well, maybe I need to, to, to go put, and get some a, cash under the, pillow, <laughs> under, under the pillows or something. Uh, you know, and, and when you think about that, those kinds of vulnerabilities, right? So you have like the third party folks. So if you're a bank and you're relying on some kind of third party, you know, what are their cybersecurity systems? And then you have this global environment, right? Where you where um, you have uh, potential either bad actors from overseas or just relationships, right? Between different financial institutions that are located in different jurisdictions. How does one go about that cross-border um building those cross-border financial relationships in order to safeguard uh, the U.S. digital infrastructure? Well, fortunately for us in the uh, Department of Treasury is FinCEN, who plays a critical role in that of um, setting guidelines around anti-money laundering and bank security-related activities. And then the national banking regulators are responsible for, you know, reviewing banks' compliance with those laws and regulations. And and um, I would say those are healthy laws, and the banks have done, I think, a, an exceptional job over the last three to five years of raising their game, so to speak, to be able to stop people from, you know, entering the U.S. banking system, using that to their advantage, um, either in the form of, you know, bringing dollars in for people who want to harm our country or who are trying to filter dollars through an illegal activity um, that creates, you know, liquidity on the backside of that for often these uh, illegal actions. Um, I think we've done a really good job of that. And then also FinCEN, you know, obviously has worldwide sanctions and reviews of what goes on. So that is, a, I think, a very good partnership uh, between, you know, FinCEN and the National Credit Union and the FDIC and the Fed and ourselves. We have a working group that meets almost every week to talk about things that we're trying to move forward. And then the principals of the various agencies meet once a month. We have an agenda of items that we've been trying to move forward. Some of those are on the issue that we describe, which is how can we allow innovation to continue to come into this space and aid our ability to track people like that. And then some of it is, how do we, what can we do with our current rules and regulations to make sure that what we're focused on is catching the bad guys, but not just doing a whole lot of processes that don't really um, uh, assist in the end result of, of catching people versus a lot of check the box kind of stuff. And that, that partnership has worked very well over the last 12 to 18 months as we brought that together. Thank you so much for, for your time. I just wanted to leave you with, or, or with, with just one question that's just come to mind. You've, you've been at this job now, and we hear all, all these different kinds of challenges. What are you most optimistic about, and, and what do you think is the, the hardest part of, of, of doing your job? Um, first of all, the most optimistic that I am is uh, the dedication of the people of the OCC. Um, it's not unusual for me to jump on the elevator or walking down the hall and say hello to somebody and learn that they've been here 48 years. In fact, I was with somebody last night in New York. We uh, uh, had gone to the Jamaican uh, Queens District and did a bus tour where we went and looked at the inner city and projects that were being done. And there was a lady on the bus tour with me, Glenda, who's been with the OCC for 48 years. Oh, wow. Um, and, you know, has played such a critical role. And unfortunately for us, she's planning to retire at the end of the year. So it's one of those things where a lot of people are getting an opportunity because people like Glenda are moving on. But at the same time, it's very sad for us. But but the tenure at this agency um, is very unique of the longevity and the career opportunities. 
I think on on the other side is, you know, we are in a very long-gated environment from the standpoint of, of uh, an expansionary cycle. And I think we always run the risk late in the stage that, you know, credit quality is generally the only way that historically banks have gotten into trouble. They can, re- they can survive reputational risk. They can survive technology issues. But when you get into a credit quality issue, it's very difficult for a bank generally to work its way out of that. And so we're, you know, constantly reminding banks late in the cycle, you know, not to assume too much risk at this point in time, because the models look completely different in a recession than they do in a healthy economic environment. And so we're constantly reminding financial institutions about the issue of credit risk um, and making sure they're taking appropriate credit risk. And, and just as important, understand the risk that you're taking. Mr. Comptroller, thank you so much for your time. Thank this you very much. fascinating It's been my pleasure. some of the opportunities and challenges that face American fintechs stem at least in part from our very fragmented regulatory system. The fact that states have so much power allows us to be a laboratory for experimentation. But in a digital world, that same quality can also give just one state a kind of a veto power over a firm's national expansion. Meanwhile, we have the OCC in the middle of it trying to fashion out policies that tailor ideas like community reinvestment to infrastructures like the internet that span borders, to say nothing of credit and cybersecurity risks. It's quite a job. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C H R I S B R U M M E R D R. We'd love to hear from you. <laughs>